Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, uh, people talk about pet parents and there, there's a general kind of like uh, negative uh, assessment that goes along with that. And I can offer a negative assessment. Uh, I was at the mall one day eating lunch and a, a woman, in case you're not sure what a stereotypical pet parent looks like. Is it different from a cat lady? Uh, a stereotypical yeah. cat lady. Okay. Yeah. I, well, we'll see. I don't know. Right. Let me know. I was enjoying my sandwich on my lunch break at the mall and a woman uh, approximately around the age of 70 in uh, like a long, long wig and a hot pink jumpsuit. I like her already. A uh, sweatsuit. Perhaps it had a word on the butt. She walked by pushing a stroller and I thought, isn't that adorable? That lady is is taking her grandchild out for a lunchtime stroll. And when I looked down... There was a dog in the stroller. Oh. And uh, that is the image that I had in my mind when we started researching and reading about pet parenting and the perceptions thereof. Yes. Someone wrote in with a suggestion about pet parenting because I feel like culturally it's on the one end of the spectrum. There is the person who might think to put their miniature dog in a stroller and take it out in public and that that's normal and that that is and that that's typical animal caring behavior um tlc not surprisingly made a show called i'm obsessed with my pet all about extreme pet parents who have fur babies and fur children and i mean <laughs> The, the, the thing is, though, it's like, all right, that, that's one kind of spectacle where you, you do have people who are, are spending exorbitant amounts of money on animals. And but then there's also just the fact that if you are an adult and you don't have kids, mm-hmm. maybe you don't want kids and you have dogs or right. cats and maybe partially because you don't have kids and you have more time to invest, like they are part of the family, whether you have kids or not, you know, because I know um, that growing up, for instance, I I had cats and they were like members of the family. Mm -hmm. I as much as I would have liked to have put my cat smudge in (laughs) in a carriage and taking them around. I never did. But, you know, I did feed them pancakes. <laughs> so as I would a child these days. <laughs> these days, if you had one around. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there are d- different variations on the pet parenting idea. I mean, you have people like that woman I saw at the mall. But you also, like you were talking about, you have, uh, you know, singles or just childless couples who, for whatever reason, do not have kids who have pets. And, but I feel like there's a, a division there, mm-hmm. even in that. There's like a subset because you have the people who just have pets and people assume the worst about them that like, oh, you're a cat lady or you're obsessed with your pet and you're treating it like a child and you're substituting it for a child or the people who really say. And I've I've known some folks who have said this, that, you know, my pet 
is nicer and gives me more love than any human ever could. Sure. And there has also been uh, a backlash and sort of fear mongering about this notion of pet parenting, particularly directed at the millennial generation who's delaying marriage, delaying having kids overall and might be more invested in having a pet first. And some say this is just a sign of how, you know, the traditional family dynamic is breaking down and all of a sudden we have animals instead of children. What's going on? So we're going to touch on all of this to get more of a bird's eye view. It's an animal pun of <laughs> this pet parenting thing and look at briefly at the history of pet ownership in the United States, because obviously it's not new that we have animals in our home who, whom we love very much. Uh, but first of all, let's start off, though, with some industry numbers, because one thing that is Absolutely true is that we spend more on our pets than ever before. Yeah, and it is doubling and tripling and quadrillionupining. That's a word that I just made up to indicate to you how fast the pet industry is growing. This actually should probably be a premium podcast for <laughs> for dogs, Caroline, so that we can we can retire early. But anyway, that's right. Um, according to a report called U.S. Pet Market Outlook for the year 2012 to 2013, U.S. pet industry sales reached more than 56 billion in 2011, up from more than 54 billion the year before. Why? Why is this happening? A lot of it does have to do with a degree of marketing. Uh, a lot of stores are saying, okay, people are spending more on their pets these days. We're going to try to be specialty stores and fill that niche. And then it's just like an endless cycle of spending on studded rhinestone collars and strollers for your pet. Right. And also high-end dog foods or cat foods, uh, doggy daycare, setting up doggy play dates, depending on where you are. And this can also, I'm, I'm using dog a lot as the example. It can go for other kinds of animals as well. And on top of that, we own more pets than ever before. According to a survey from the American Pet Products Manufacturers Association, it found that two-thirds of American homes have pets, and that's about 71 million homes have pets. And 45% of those have more than one pet, which is up from in 1988 when just around uh, 55, 56% of households had pets. And... If you're, you know, speaking of pet parenting and the question of whether or not we're, you know, having pets instead of kids, we do have more pets than children. <laughs> Just 46% of U.S. households have kids under 18. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are more pets than kids. And so, whereas, you know, years and years and years ago, Spot and Fido would not have required much money to be spent on them. What? You get them food, you get them like a dog house. And that's pretty much it. Uh, stores and retailers like PetSmart, for instance, have figured out how to capitalize on pet ownership. For instance, Ken Hall, who's the chief marketing officer over at PetSmart, which they had this whole branding campaign to change from PetSmart to PetSmart, which I just like to point out I always thought it was. Anyway, Ken Hall, the chief marketing officer, says the whole emotional connection of being a parent when the child is no longer in the house, is being replaced by a pet. For good or for bad, a pet provides unconditional love. You come home from work and the pet is not mad. And so 
they really are playing off of this trend of people, um, you know, loving on their pets instead of children at the moment. Well, in, in addition to perhaps showering your pet with higher end goods like fancy toys and treats, I mean, the, the technology around pet ownership has also upped the potential price of having a pet because, I mean, today the lifespan of a dog or a cat can be extended a lot longer than it used to be because of the availability of medical procedures. Procedures like chemotherapy, MRIs, and hip replacements happening at your veterinarian's office, and to help the the pet live a healthier life. In the meantime, there are things like supplements that you can give them. So there are all these different additives that are almost making a pet's life more like a kid's life in terms of having to clothe it, feed it, and also provide health care. And just like any good parent would do, we also give our pets Christmas presents and Hanukkah presents and Kwanzaa presents. We give them holiday presents, should I say. Uh, CNBC in November 2012 reported that Americans spend an average of $5 billion on their pets during the holidays. 53% of dogs and 38% of cats got a gift. And I think it's funny because uh, somebody they quoted in the story said that cat owners are more value sensitive, you know, like dot, dot, dot. Like, even though we have the stereotype of people being like crazy cat ladies, they're probably not actually as crazy as dog people who, you know, parade their pets outside. And so they need pet accessories. Pet well, accessories. and I think it's just the, the difference between the feline and the canine nature, because right. whereas obviously giving a, a cat a toy is really fun, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. A lot of cats kind of just don't need it. You know, they're yeah. almost too good for, for your silly little toys. Um, but when did pets really become a part of American families. Um, this is something that Catherine C. Greer looked into. She wrote a book about it called Pets in America, A History. And just for some notable pet owners over the years, Mark Twain, by the way, we talk about crazy cat ladies. Well, Mark Twain apparently was a crazy cat gent. And going way back in history, in ancient Rome, women would tote around small bejeweled dogs and small lap dogs have also been popular for centuries. If you look in Renaissance art and images of the wealthier families and the noble people, a lot of times they'll have these little lap dogs hanging out. Yeah. And uh, in the 1700s, Frederick the Great of Prussia is a great example of a crazy dog person. He was so devoted to his dogs. And when his greyhound died, he wrote of his heartache. It is best to be too sensitive than too hard. And there was playwright uh, Eugene O'Neill, who may not have gotten along with his human children, but he loved his Dalmatian so much that he gave the dog an Hermes raincoat and a four-poster bed. Oh, to be that Dalmatian. (laughs) Wow. Um, And then something interesting happens in the mid-1800s, where this idea of keeping a pet becomes part of the concept of the ideal family. And Greer talks about how this goes along with a rise in the domestic ethic, as she calls it, of kindness to animals, to where, say, a cat, for instance, would go from just being a a mouse catcher to really being part of a family that you would want to make sure is is happy and healthy. And the cat's going, what are you doing? Stop petting me. God, I just want to catch some mice. I want to catch some mice. 
Well, so uh, in the 1950s, post-World War II, we have a large rise in pet ownership thanks to disposable income, but also thanks to things like comic books and other pop culture items that really featured families, the nuclear family, as having a pet, you know, two kids and a dog. So we also have, at this time, the rise in pet stores. So you can actually go to a store and shop for your animal. And you also have the development of something I've never thought about the evolution of. You have the development of the cat litter box, because it used to literally just be a box with sand. Yeah, so it's becoming easier, in other words, for cats and dogs to live alongside families. They really become integrated. And it it reminds me, you're talking about pop culture, it reminds me of, you know, you have a show like Lassie coming on. I'm not sure when... Old Yeller. Yeah, Lassie, Old Yeller, all of these um, different kids' books and things uh, coming out featuring that such important relationship, especially between like a child and a dog. Mr. Ed, a talking horse. And that's why I got my first talking horse when I was three. (laughs) Her name was Belinda. I wish. Um, So today, though, moving from... The 1950s to today, what's going on with this idea of pet parenting where we've transitioned from the typical, you know, lassie hanging out, (laughs) showing us where the dead body is (laughs) at the bottom of the river to this idea of someone who is using a pet or investing in a pet to maybe fill an emotional void or or having them almost as a stand-in for a human. It's just that intense, I don't even like to call it a stand-in because that devalues the relationship, in in my opinion. Um, but where this intense companionship seems to have taken on more of a significance for a greater number of people, or maybe we're just, we just have a name for it now called pet parenting. Yeah, and when you look at who does it, it's it's pretty self-explanatory. Psychologist Julia Becker talked about how it's pet parenting or just the stereotype of pet parenting is pretty pervasive among empty nesters, singles and or the childless and the homebound. You know, we are living longer. We're, we are delaying marriage, as you talked about. So we are, again, I agree with you. I don't want to say filling the hole with these pets, but... We are opting to have sort of a low-maintenance companion in our lives, whether that means we are doing it, as some people do, to kind of prepare for having a kid later in life, or whether we just have opted completely to have pets instead of kids. Right, and that reminds me, with the the empty nesters, for instance, it reminds me of when uh, a few years ago, all of the kids obviously had moved out of my parents' house and my mom had a cat. And when that cat ended up dying, it was so hard for her because he had really taken on a role in the house of greeting her, of interacting, of, you know, like just providing that sort of interaction that might not have been as available without having kids at home mm-hmm. all of the time. So I can totally understand that. Um, and there was a recent analysis that I found on gender differences in human-animal interactions. And it found that um, men and women both closely align in terms of how many have a companion animal, i.e. a pet, and both have high pet attachment. I mean, even though there's that stereotype of, uh, you know, crazy cat ladies and maybe dogs being men's best friends or something that I think there's more of an idea that, that women would be more 
prone to pet parenting. Yeah. If they like can't have a child Instead, or something like that. Right. Instead of a baby. Exactly. But statistically, it's it's both men and women who, you know, we all form these these kinds. A lot of us, at least, I should say, we are equally prone to form these deep relationships with animals. Yeah, and there was a Kelton research survey that showed that 58% of respondents called themselves their pet's mommy or daddy. And 80% of respondents consider their pets to be full members of the family. And this really jives with a Packaged Facts 2012 pet owner survey where that showed 9 out of 10 pet owners agree with the statement, I consider my pets to be part of the family. And two-thirds view their pet as their best friend and enjoy Purchasing products that pamper the pet. It's understandable. I've started living with a dog for the very first time, and I get way too much joy now out of bringing home a treat from the grocery store. Were your parents okay with you moving in with a dog? Did you talk to them about it beforehand? Uh, you know, they, they had to meet the dog a couple <laughs> times. The dog came over for some barbecues. Um, but no, it's like, I, I get it. Reading mm-hmm. about this stuff now, I totally get it. And there was also a recent study that came out in the journal called Anthrozoos by psychologist Richard Topolsky. And it was fascinating. He posed this hypothetical in which participants had to choose between saving a person or a dog from being hit by a runaway bus. And the results, he tinkered with the results by changing whether the person was a foreign tourist or a distant cousin or a friend of theirs. Obviously, you know, getting the relationship closer and closer to the person. And then with the animal, whether it was just a random dog or, say, a pet. And he found that 40% of the subjects said that under the circumstance of a foreign stranger versus a dog, they would save the animal. And he said that uh, when he asked the participants why they would choose to save the dog over a foreign stranger, it was the issue of kinship because they consider their pets family. And for one gender difference, women were a lot more likely to choose a pet over a person. Yeah, it's funny. And the people who provided, the people who said they would save the person over the dog uh, were a lot more likely to provide logical responses. The people who said that they would save a dog over a person, whether it was in this study about the train tracks or saving a dog versus a baby in a burning building, I think was another one. Um, but the people who said they would save the pet over the human provided very emotionally laden responses, uh, whether whether they were men or women who said it. And I was thinking about it, and it's like, well, maybe people would think to save the dog because the human should be able to propel himself out from in front of the train. Right. Well, and Topolsky said that, yes, this is a hypothetical situation. It's not meant to precisely predict human behavior, because if you're actually in a situation where you had to choose between a dog or animal and a bus is coming through you being driven by Keanu Reeves, um, then... Uh, who knows what would happen, but he said that it's such a, it's still a good example of that close kind of kinship in his words that we do form and how once you start moving the metric on the relationship of the person versus the pet, uh, if you get that relationship with the pet close enough, then yeah, we want to save it. Sure. And those poor foreign tourists. <laughs> I'm sure they were wearing socks with sandals. It's fine. Let them go. Um, but there has been, though, a recent panic 
over this notion of pet parenting and not just complaints from people saying like, oh, you know, dogs don't belong in strollers, but actually projecting it out to be this sign that there is something wrong with the world. And it's tied a lot to lowering fertility rates, concerns about millennials like you and me, Caroline, just being too selfish and a stigma against child free by choice people. Yeah, well, let's look at fertility rate panic first. Uh, there was an article in The Guardian in June 2012 talking about Japan and how folks are starting to prefer pets to parenthood and, frankly, pets to sex also. They are currently panicking over their plummeting birth rates in Japan, where there is now there are now more pets than children. So when you look at population estimates, they estimate that there are 22 million pets in Japan versus 16.6 million children under 15, which is crazy, sure. I mean, we we saw that there was that unbalanced number in our country, too. Yeah, we have a wider gap yeah. in the United States. But what's funny is uh, in the article, they mentioned that, like, okay, uh, purchase and use of birth control is down. Abortions are down, but so are births. So that means that, like, people in Japan are just, like, not doing it. And adopting pets instead. Yeah, there have been a, definitely lots of uh, concerns over adults, younger adults, seeming disinterest in even having sex. And so with a trend story like this, they present evidence such as people buying, spending their you know disposable income on pet clothing from designer labels like Gucci, Chanel and Dior rather than using that money to either pursue a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, or have a child. Um, and The Guardian says, in many parts of Tokyo, it's easier to buy clothes for dogs than for children. And, you know, if you want to get that deluxe Buddhist funeral for your pet, a cremation ceremony can cost $8,000. But I do think, though, I'm, I'm sure this is going on, but I sometimes I, I wonder about trend stories like this. Like, are we actually seeing the what's going on population-wide, or are they taking a snapshot of a specific segment of people? What I like to imagine is the journalist's face the day that story was assigned to him or her? Because I know I'd be like, yes, 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 I will write about Japanese people, sex, and small dogs. Hey, that, yeah, that doesn't <laughs> sound bad. I'd be, <laughs> and you get a free trip to Tokyo. Um, but now moving on to the millennials issue, there was a lot of fallout over survey results. There are all these surveys. Oh, surveys. Um, there were these survey res- results from this organization called Flexen International, which helps find older dogs homes. Hooray. And they found that. Among the 21 to 30 year old pet owners that Flexen talked to, 60% preferred an older dog. And why, Caroline, did they prefer an older dog? Well, 89% said they didn't have time to housebreak or deal with puppies. Understandable. And then, this is where the panic really ignited. 54% of those pet owners said that they would prefer a dog to a child, which led people like Wired's geek dad blogger, Curtis Silver, to say very unkind things about us. Yeah, he was, it kind of started out, the tone, the tone shifted, I should say. Yes. It kind of started out reading like, 
Hey, I know you're scared about having kids, young person, but it's really not as bad or as expensive as you think. And you're like, oh, you're easing me into this. This is nice of you, dad of three children. And then it quickly turns into like, seriously, are you an idiot? Are you so selfish? What's wrong with you? Yeah. And there was we we could cite a number of examples across the Internet of, of bloggers in particular. There was I, I she will go a name, but there was one uh, doctor blogger who who fears for the future of the human race. No joke. Right. Because some people would prefer to have a dog than have a child. Yeah, I, th- I think we can we can stand. to. Well, it's just I don't understand that level of panic over it. And honestly, I think the more that I read about it and the tone that critics, the sharpest and the rudest, I'll go ahead and say critics, usually I I think that it boils down to a bit of a stigma that still persists over people who do not want to have children. We did a podcast a long time ago about people who are child-free by choice. We're like, you know what? I I just don't want a kid. I'm fine. And it doesn't mean that they hate children. They just don't want children. And um, so there's this idea that, you know, two career couples are the norm. People are marrying later. We're divorcing more frequently. We're working more. We have longer commutes. And so all this is adding up to us maybe just... Having pets instead? I mean, maybe, because if you are working those longer hours, you know, you do have to look up or look down at those big eyes of a human child and be like, I'm sorry, mommy missed your recital. Whereas a pet, it's just like, here's a milk bone. But it's like, why can't, why can't we just have a pet? Well, yeah. You know? Well, yeah, exactly. And, and reading a lot of this stuff online, really, I can't say that it offended me because I was like, your argument is so ridiculous and backwards. But a lot of these people on the Internet who are arguing that we, whether we are millennials or whether we're older or whatever, who are saying that we're selfish and awful people for not having children. It's like their argument is almost hysterical because I read one that was like, oh, you just want to not have kids so that you can go take your Tahiti beach vacation. And I was like. Uh, you're freaking right. I want to take a beach vacation to Tahiti. But it's, it's kind of like you're, you're not really understanding that not everybody wants to make the same choice. Exactly. And Laura Carroll, who blogs over at Technorati, summed it up well, I thought. She writes, why do people think pets serve the role of children for so many child-free adults? In part because our value system tells us we should all want kids. So there is the perception that child-free people just haven't gotten with the program with regard to parenthood and remedially have pets instead. And and that's such a good point of just saying, you know, like, it's... Yeah, I mean, you can't equate the two. Right. And also, too, for, you know, before you start to insult a couple who maybe just has pets instead of kids, like, it reminded me of LGBT couples who, yeah, maybe having a child is either, like, an insane amount of paperwork to go through if they have to go through an adoptive process or for a lesbian couple going through in vitro treatments and things like that if they want to, you know, have a child more naturally. Um, or just, if it's just not an option. Yeah. You know why it's even for that matter alone, I feel like we should open up our mind a little bit and not be so panicked at the the idea. But also, what are you so worried about? Yeah. People who are so angry about people having pets like what 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 makes you so angry that some people opt or, you know, decide to have pets? 
Well, there was an article in the New York Times. It's more New York specific that did get a ton of reader comments because it was an article about pets in public. And I scrolled through a number of those comments and the arguments that some people made were very valid in terms of basically if you're going to take your pet in public, clean up after it, Mm -hmm. make sure that it is a pet friendly space. I don't necessarily want to be sitting eating dinner next to your dog. Um, I get all that. You know, if you're going to be a pet parent in the same way, if you're going to be a parent of a human child. (laughs) <laughs> clean up after your child, make sure it is a kid-friendly space. It's all of the same kinds of courtesies. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, like, I don't want a dog running around barking and bothering me at dinner any more than I want a child running around screaming bothering me at right. dinner. But we should point out, though, that... Uh, you know, while obviously you and I are, are more on the stance of saying, hey, give give pet parents a break or just, you know, just call us people. Um, pet obsession can definitely become just that, an obsession. It can have an unhealthy edge to it where it might not be end up being a healthy thing for, for the pet. Yeah, I mean, if you are doing things like putting your dog in a stroller and never walking it, your pet's quality of life is going to suffer. Your pet will not be as healthy if you're pushing it around all day because it's not what it was designed to do. I mean, yes, you might have one of those tiny dogs that just quivers all the time and, and is afraid of the outside. Oh. But, but, but just take care of your dog like it's a dog. I mean, one, one inter- a couple of interesting things that I learned when we were reading about this is that, you know, For instance, when dogs get scared during thunderstorms or loud noises or things like that, the last thing you should do is comfort it the way you would run to a child to comfort the child if the child is scared. Because dogs are looking at you as the pack leader and they want you to be strong and, you know, set boundaries and rules. So it's more like when a pet is scared during a thunderstorm, you should be like, no, Fluffy, shut up and go to your bed. Versus a child where you're like, no, mommy's here. It's okay. You're like, no, Timmy, shut up and go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Mommy needs her wine. <laughs> um, and, well, and the thing too, there, the, one of the downsides of developing such close relationships with pets is that when it is time for a pet to die, it can be so much harder. One of the most common situations that becomes really unhealthy for the pet is if it has a terminal condition and the owner just doesn't want to consider euthanasia or doesn't mm-hmm. want to to even take it to the vet because they know that it's going to be bad news. So that's something to watch out for. And also, I mean, animal hoarding, obviously, it's a, a major form of abuse. And women, we are more likely to do this than men are. Yeah, that, that is awful. And, and like we, we talked about in our cat lady episode about people who, um, kind of quote unquote adopt feral animals and stuff under the assumption that like, no, I'm, I'm saving it and I'm, I'm helping it, but really it's, it's not healthy for the animal either. But Christine Pelicano had an interesting perspective. She's a cat sitter, dog walker and pet artist slash photographer in New York City says she has seen pet parent trends mirror child parent trends. She said that she has seen people achieving their own sense of achievement and stardom through their pets. There are people who force their pets into uncomfortable settings, environments, and situations, even when a pet is shutting down and not enjoying the limelight. So it's kind of like she's comparing, you know, pageant moms and pet parents. Well, and I've also seen articles about uh, permissive pet parenting, for instance, not wanting to uh, be... 
punitive with your pet in the same way that you'll see articles about permissive child, human child, right. parenting. And bottom line, too, one thing that we want to emphasize is that if you are going to take a pet into your home, you know, it's not a temporary thing either. It's not like a try on for size. You want to be, you want to be, if you're going to take a pet in, you do want to be prepped to be a good parent in the same way that you want to be a good parent for a human child. Because the saddest thing and one of the most disappointing things to see is someone take in a dog, for instance, who has no business taking in a dog, and they don't have time to walk it, and they don't have time to give it the care that it needs, and the dog ends up suffering. Oh, sure. No, I knew a guy who um, he had wanted to adopt a dog, and he hadn't started you know, researching it or anything like that. He really wasn't ready, but a friend of his found uh, a dog on the side of the road and was like, you know, do you want it? I've saved this dog. You know, she needs a home. So he adopts this dog, but he has no time to train her, no time to be home with her and spend quality time because he works such long hours. So this dog ends up having free reign of everything. He doesn't discipline her. And to a dog, that's really scary because they need boundaries and rules. They need to know that you're a strong leader who will protect them and and, and help them. And so this dog ended up just tearing his house apart. She was... Very poorly behaved, as adorable as she was, yeah. in case he's listening. She's very adorable, but, I mean, come on. Don't, if you honestly can't take care of an animal of any kind, please, please, please don't get one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for, for couples, though, there is more of, I think it's a more recent conundrum that has come up. This is one, this is one valid point that you hear about, uh, people wagging their finger about pet parenting. If you are with someone, and you have a pet, and that's kind of your shared custody, your, your child together. What happens during the breakup? I have personal story moment. I have uh, been with. I, I dated two guys actually who had shared custody of dogs with their ex girlfriends. Really, I feel like we are at a young age for that to be happening. I don't know. I, I mean, they were probably in their, you know, mid twenties when they were dating and, and what are they this- doing getting shared dogs with girlfriends? Yeah, I that know. is another thing. Make, make sure you're ready to get a, a, a shared animal if you're going to do that. Um, but it was whenever it would be their weekend for the dog, it was always, I was patient with it. They were very cute dogs, but I, it was a strange thing, you know, cause I was like, you're not, wait, so you're going to have to go see your ex-girlfriend and pick up your dog. Okay. This doesn't make much sense. But I mean, is that honestly going to continue for 13 years? Like, right. So I'd be curious to hear from people listening. If you have shared dog custody with somebody, like, what do you, what do you do? Like, how, how can that go on for, for too long? I feel like at some point it just kind of fizzles out. I feel like maybe it's a way that you, sort of hang on to a relationship for maybe a little too long. And then finally, you're, it's going to go from every weekend, every other weekend to monthly to like yeah. in the same way that you keep up with a person sometimes. Sure, yeah. And there's going to be somebody who has more ability to care for the dog than the other person. Exactly. Then. Yeah. But hey, you would always have a dog sitter. That's true. <laughs> there you go. So there's an upside. Um, I feel like we've we've covered so many aspects of this. Top down and sideways from the from the extreme obsessive to the people who 
just really love their pets. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, I do really, though, want to read that Catherine Greer book about pets in America, a history, because hmm. it sounds fascinating. She focuses a lot for people who th- this might be of interest to. She focuses a lot, apparently, on the 1800s with that shift and pets during the Victorian era, which sounds it's like it's got to be full of fascinating. I wonder tidbits. what the Victorians did when their dogs sat down and started licking their private parts. You wonder if they were just aghast, clutching their pearls. Oh man, I don't. Oof, I don't. Maybe they had like a like a modesty sheet. They would just throw up at the dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, folks out there, we want to hear from you. I know we, I'm sure we have plenty of pet parents listening. Have you ever gotten any? Flack from other people about your attachment to your pets. Um, people who are child-free by choice who might have pets. Have you heard similar arguments? And also for people who think that this kind of companionship with animals is ridiculous. You know, do you think it's it's too much? Let us know all of your thoughts. Oh, and if you want to send us pictures of your pets... Please. We'll love that too. Um, so momstuffadiscovery.com is where you can email us that stuff. You can also... Post on Facebook and tweet us as well at Mom Stuff Podcast. And now back to our letters. Kristen, I have a letter here from Julia about our drunkorexia episode. She says, I have a different name for it. I'm a Kiwi, New Zealander, currently living in London, both places which cultivate a rather unhealthy drinking culture. And I had no idea what drunkorexia was. But when you started to explain it, I thought, oh, you guys mean eating's cheating. Eating's cheating as in you want a sandwich before we head out? Nah, eating's cheating. It is a phrase that has been well used by all my friends, male and female, since I was in my teens. Our drinking age is 18. And I even still hear it now that we are in our mid-20s. I would just like to point out that I would never turn down a sandwich from you, Julia. Anyway, uh, she says, I think it's a combination of getting drunker quicker and saving yourself some money, which is what we found when we did the podcast. Uh, but I can't handle those hangovers, so I'll stick with a nice dinner before I go out, or at least a kebab at some point in the evening. She says, anyway, thanks for the podcast. Just thought I would get you in the loop with some colloquialisms from the other side of the world. Eating is not cheating, people. Eating is winning. Eating is super winning. (laughs) It's winning. Um, Well, I've got an email here from a listener. I'm going to call B, just in case you'd like a little bit of anonymity, because she's writing in in response to our episode on anorexia in men. So... Trigger warning if that is a factor. Um, but she writes, thank you for the podcast on anorexia and men. You did a great job. And as a recovering female anorexic and compulsive overexerciser, I found that you covered the science and psychology very well. And it was not at all triggering. She writes, in one hospital treatment setting, there was only one boy with anorexia and he felt shamed and depressed. There was another with bulimia, which was considered more acceptable to his friends because he was a wrestler and he was just trying to become a better athlete. In residential slash intensive outpatient slash partial hospitalization, I was never with a male. I went to Center for Discovery for Residential and they had multiple houses, but only one allowed males. One thing I noticed is the lack of males as treatment providers besides medical doctors. Most of the counselors, nurses, therapists, nutritionists were all women. There was a male counselor. He was gay, so perhaps he was a bit more understanding of having stigmas attached. However, I found it helpful to have male input. I also had a wonderful psychiatrist who not only prescribed medicines, but also was a great person to talk to. While 
none of the female counselors talked about fat, food, body hate, etc., it was still helpful to have a male to balance everything. I understand the body dysmorphic disorder having it myself, and I can only imagine how difficult it would be for males to not be fit and muscled. Girls can often change their hair, makeup, and clothes to raise their self-esteem if they might not like their bodies, but guys are often stuck with what they have. And if they don't have those Channing Tatum abs, then they're bound to feel bad. And it seems like females and males are bombarded with celebrity-slash-athlete images of the perfect bodies. So it's hard to differentiate and remember that these people spend their lives working out, eating right, and have lots of people helping them. So thank you. And thank you, B, for writing in and to everybody for writing in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is our email address. You can follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Hit us up on Facebook as well. We've always got fun stuff going on over there as well as on our Tumblr, StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And don't forget that you can watch us as well four times a week now on YouTube. Head over to YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 